0: As we come to the word of God this morning, let's, uh, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to worship you and to open your word. I pray, Father, as we come to your holy, inspired word that you have given to us, that you would please open the eyes of our hearts that we may see the wonderful things that, is, that are there. Help us to see this morning your son revealed. And may we worship And that we trust with greater fervency, greater passion. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, this morning we do return to the book of Luke, chapter 8. And I invite you to turn there in your personal copy of God's word. If uh, you don't have a Bible with you, then we encourage you to use the one that's in the pew rack directly in front of you. And you'll find our passage on page 1028 in that pew Bible. 1028, Luke chapter 8. Last week we looked at the first 21 verses of this chapter and what we saw there was Jesus teaching. Jesus teaching uh, particularly the the well-known parable of the sower or parable of the soils as it's also known. And in that teaching he taught like unlike anybody else. He was able to pinpoint people exactly where they were. He, he knew what, where their hearts stood and he taught with authority. And yet in light of Jesus doing this wonderful teaching, many people even since that day, since that first century, have wanted only to acknowledge Jesus' teaching and his teaching ability, but they don't want to acknowledge anything else. In particular, in recent centuries, with the rise of the Enlightenment, rationalists are willing to say that Jesus was a great teacher, and he offered many great spiritual insights, but they reject his miracles. They reject the wondrous works that he did. They're willing to say that he was indeed a historical person, that he taught some great things, but they deny that he was anything other than an enlightened individual. He's just like all of those great teachers of other religions. The problem is, is the gospel accounts do not allow us that luxury. The gospel accounts do not let us just to identify Jesus as a teacher and yet to reject everything else. They are all incorporated his miracles and his teaching all into the same word and if we accept the word as the word of God then we must accept all of it as an accurate portrait of who Jesus is and it's clear that Jesus operated not just with normal natural talent but with supernatural power and so as I said the first half of chapter 8 we covered last week emphasized his teaching Today, we're gonna pivot to the second half of chapter 8 in verse 22 and following, and it's in the rest of the chapter 8 that he gives us four miracles by Jesus. Four miracles. Teaching, miracles, all in one chapter. Now this week, today, we're gonna look at two of those miracles. We'll save two of them for next week. And so as we look at the first two miracles in chapter 8 here, we're gonna see two displays, two displays of Jesus's unmatched power. Two displays of Jesus's unmatched power. And these displays of his power should do for us what they did and should have done for the disciples in that day. And that is to produce more trust in our savior. We should see who Jesus is and what he's able to do and it should cause our faith to go deeper into him, and I pray that's the case this morning. So let's look at these two displays of Jesus' power in chapter eight. The first is Jesus' power over natural forces. Jesus' power over natural forces, and we see this in verses twenty-two through twenty-five. Let's read those verses. Follow along as I read verse chapter Luke chapter eight, verses twenty-two through twenty-five. It says, one day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Well, in this Act of Jesus' power, along with the second one that we'll see this morning. There's really three stages of the narrative. The first is the crisis, the second is the salvation, and the third is the response. So let's begin by looking at the crisis in this text, and this is in verses 22 through the first part of 24. And here in verse 22, Luke sets the scene for us that Jesus is looking to go on a little missions trip. It says, He got into a boat with his disciples and said to him, Let's go across to the other side of the lake. Now, Luke disconnects this from what came immediately prior in verses 19 through 21. But Mark, as we see his gospel account, he connects it with the same day that Jesus preached the parable of the sowers. And it says, When it was evening, then they got into the boat and then they went to the other side. So, this is at the end of a long day of teaching. Explains why he was probably tired. And it says, notice, that he says, let's go to the other side of the lake. And we need to know that this is not just on a whim, Jesus looking to go on a little vacation, let's just kind of go to different parts of the lake, and hey, let's go to the other side today. No, this is an intentional move by Jesus. Now this lake that's re- being referred to is the, what is more commonly known as the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee it's a fresh water lake, and therefore we can understand why we would call it a lake. And, <clears throat> but there locally, it's known as the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of uh, Chinnereth, the different names for it. In chapter 5, it was called the Lake of Gennesaret, and so hence Luke sticks with that and calls it a lake here. Now there are two, uh, it's one lake But there are two very distinct shores, two very distinct regions uh, where there's different jurisdictions on this lake. Uh, Like uh, we we have here in California, like in Lake Tahoe. Those of you who have visited there, right? You know there's a California side and there's a Nevada side. And uh, even though it's one lake, there's shorelines that are shared by different jurisdictions. And the same is here and the Sea of Galilee. There was a Jewish side, And there was a Gentile side. The Gentile side was known as the Decapolis, which is Greek for ten cities. It refers to an area of Gentile cities that, that went down even up to the shore of the Sea of Galilee. But most of the lake was Jewish in jurisdiction. And so Jesus, being primarily being a Jew and being on the Jewish side, reaching Galilee, which is the, the region of northern Israel, he wants to go to the other side, which means he wants to go to the Gentile side. He's looking to make a distinct move to go from his own people to those who are outside of Israel. And this is significant. This is his first recorded foray into Gentile territory. We've seen him interact with Gentiles, such as a centurion already in the text, and the faith of that centurion. But here, Jesus goes himself towards the Gentiles. It'll be interesting to see, as he goes in this way, how he interacts with these foreigners, these strangers to the covenants. He's going as God's prophet, offering hope to all of humanity. As we know today, the gospel that is preached to all in this day was just beginning to make hints in that direction. But before he gets there, before they land at their destination, he has a lesson he wants to teach his disciples. And this is set up by him getting into the boat and verse 23, as they sail, he falls asleep. He's just been busy teaching and he finally, he can get a little bit of rest. His disciples are in their element. They, they're fishermen upon this lake, and so they know what they're doing. They're talking to one another, handling all, all the rigging and, and taking care of it, and he's just able to finally lay down and conk out. And let us not pass over this note, because here we see a distinctive uh, uh, characteristic of the humanity of Jesus come through here. Jesus was not uh, uh, just a God in a, in a body that kind of floated along the ground when he was here. He, he was a word become flesh, John tells us in, in John 1, 14. And therefore, he acted and lived like a man upon this earth. Yes, as we're gonna see, he did great and wondrous things. He was God in flesh, but he was also a man. He had 100% humanity like you and I do. He didn't have half of our humanity. He had all of our humanity except without sin. And his tiredness here is a key indicator of that humanity. It's a wonderful juxtaposition of what's about to take place. We have the God-man tired, falling asleep, and he's about to do something amazing. And so this boat traveled uh, that they traveled in it was like one that was discovered recently in the bottom of the Sea of Galilee in recent years. I have a picture to show you. It's nothing uh, amazing. What you'd expect, right? It's a. It's. It can hold 15 men. It's about 26 and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, and only about four and a half feet tall. One of these was discovered uh, in, in, in recent decades. The Sea of Galilee, the, the, the water was at an all time low, and they were able to examine the seabed in some places along the shore, and they were able to discover a first century fishers, uh, fisherman's boat. And you can go online. I don't have the, the recovered pictures for you, but uh, you can see from what remains that as it there was encased in the mud something very similar to this. So it holds 15 people. There's. Uh, you know, 12, 13 there uh, in this boat. I'm sure it was a bit cozy trying to move around and make it happen, but but there they were sailing off. And again, Mark said it was evening, so no doubt the light is failing as they head off on the lake. And so he's sleeping. And then we read in the second half of verse 23, it says, And a windstorm came down the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. Here we see a sudden storm come and overtake the disciples. Now it's common in paintings of this event as well as I know in the numerous children's books that I have that recount these uh, sorts of uh, accounts of the Gospels. You can kind of see it as dark skies and lots of rain coming down like a heavy thunderstorm. But it's interesting to note that the text does not indicate that there was any rain. That this seems to be Rather, a, a, a strictly a windstorm that came and swept upon them suddenly. I mean, think about it. These are experienced sailors. If indeed there was a thunderstorm brewing, they probably would have seen that before they got into the boat. But they didn't. They set out, and yet this windstorm came and took them by surprise. And this is natural in that region because the Sea of Galilee, you see, is is... Over three hundred feet below sea level, and yet on uh, the east side, there are high cliffs and a tableland called the Golan Heights that rises over uh, to over three thousand feet above sea level, and so there is a huge disparity and the, the, the air temperatures can change drastically, causing great winds to happen. In fact, I have a picture just to uh, This is from one side of the Sea of Galilee, looking over to the east, and you can see just the high cliffs that are there on that other side. Again, the sea is over 300 feet below sea level, and that elevation of those cliffs is over 3,000. And so great wind fluctuations would take place between these elevations. And the text says that this windstorm was ferocious. I mean, it's almost as if these guys have not seen a windstorm like this in all of their boating career. And these waves kicked up significantly. It caused the boat to fill with water. And all the while, Jesus is sleeping. I mean, I have to imagine that Jesus was soaked. I mean, with the waves that are coming into the boat, I mean, he's like sleeping in a pool of water. And yet he's still knocked out. Some of us know how to sleep that hard. And our families (laughs) have a hard time waking us up. So Jesus is, is sleeping through this. And I'm sure the guys are thinking, okay this is getting bad you know they're bailing water and it's like should we wake up jesus no he'll wake up you know they're they're just continuing to bail water trying to make this happen but it is continuing to get stronger and stronger to the point that these experienced fishermen who have lived their lives upon this lake are fearing for their life they're fearing for their lives they do not believe they're going to make it out of this alive they're in danger they thought the boat would fail they they believe that they did not have the ability to be able to ride this out It was beyond their skill at this point and so clearly it's a scene of chaos the wind is got to be a ferocious noise the waves crashing against the boat the water that is just continuing to fill and you you're trying to bail and it's not it's not working they're scrambling along in this little boat trying to trying to save themselves and hold on for their lives and so finally in that chaos someone says let's wake jesus They go and they shake him and they wake him. And I have to imagine, it wasn't just one guy that went to wake him. It was probably all of them kind of, everyone who was nearby kind of pouncing on him, trying to wake him up. Now, the three gospel writers who record this story, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record what the disciples said a little bit differently. Notice what Luke says here in verse 24. It says, And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Matthew says, recorded, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Mark, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I think you can recognize that all of them probably yelled out something different at that moment, just trying to get Jesus' attention. But the common point in all of it is that they are desperate. They all say, we are perishing, we are about to die. Now, here we are in the midst of a storm, with a passenger who's sleeping, where else do we read in the Bible about a scene similar to this, where there is a great storm, where the sailors believe they're going to die, and yet there's a passenger who's sleeping. Jonah. Jonah. Remember that story? The prophet who was called to go to the Gentiles well, that small book of Jonah begins in this way with a storm and with sailors feeling for, fearing for their life and yet with a passenger who's sleeping. And this similarity is not lost on Luke, the biblical author here. And so we're going to see these similarities as we go through this. But not only the similarities, we need to see the differences as well because it's in the differences between Jonah and Jesus that the significance is borne out. So here we've seen the crisis of this event. Let's look next at the salvation in, verse, in the end of verse 24. It's a quick salvation once Jesus gets involved. It says, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. So Jesus wakes up and immediately addresses the situation. The text says he rebuked the wind and the waves, the raging waves, it says, These physical elements were operating according to natural laws and yet Jesus speaks to them to interrupt what was happening. Now, any ordinary person speaking to winds and waves would have not only accomplished nothing but would have been seen as a lunatic. But Jesus showed that he was not an ordinary person. He was extraordinary. He spoke and instantly the natural world obeyed. It obeyed. Notice that it says that the wind and the waves ceased and there was a calm. The best way, I think, to understand this is that there was an the, the waters became instantly placid. Like like you're sitting out on, on, on a boat in, in a in a quiet morning before everyone else is up, before before the birds are up, and you're just kind of quietly sitting across the glassy seas. And that's what Jesus brought about with his words. The wind instantly stopped. I mean, this, think if you're in this boat. Your heart is pounding because you are afraid for your life. You're drenched. You're, You're frantic trying to make this happen. And all of a sudden, the boat stops rocking. The winds stop roaring. It's instantly quiet and calm. And you're standing there still breathing hard as Jesus has just finished saying his word and you're, Looking around, I have to imagine that they were speechless initially. Did we, what What just happened? I mean, even just going from the noise of a storm to the quiet would have been rattling enough. Well, we next see, after the salvation of Jesus, we see the response in verse 25. Jesus has the first word. Verse 25, he said to them, where is your faith? He asked him, where is your faith? He says, listen, guys, this isn't a physical problem here. This is a spiritual issue. This is a spiritual issue. Where was your faith when the storm was raging? Why wasn't it in me, essentially? He's, He's rebuking them that they should have been trusting in him they should have been resting because they had the Son of God there in the boat. It was a test to see if these disciples would truly trust him. Of course, they said, Oh, yes, Jesus will follow you, we'll be with you. And that's great when they're walking and the crowds are flocking and everyone, Jesus is popular. But now they're alone in a boat and their lives are at risk. Are they still going to trust him? Do they really believe in who he says he is? He says, where was your faith? Because it seems to have disappeared. As soon as the storm hit, their faith evaporated. Well, again, if you put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples, this had to have been a a shaking event. The combination of the traumatic storm, the dramatic calming of it by Jesus, and then a convicting question to the disciples left them in fearful awe. Look at what it says. It says, and they were afraid. They were afraid. And they marveled. Again, they are just trying to take in everything that they've just seen. Their mouths may have been hanging open, still trying to understand what just, they just witnessed. And they were amazed and freaked out all at the same time. I think, when I think about reactions to this sort of thing, I compare it in my mind to Moses and the burning bush. To witness majesty, to witness something unnatural right before your eyes, it just stops you in your tracks. And you recognize that you're in the presence of divinity. You're in the presence of God Almighty. They were in the presence of Majesty. And therefore it prompts them to ask and to say to one another, who then is this? We thought we knew Jesus before we got into the boat, but, but oh my goodness, who is this? That he commands, even winds and water, he speaks to them and they obey. They listen to him. Friends, Luke records this for us because he wants you and I to ask that same question. Who then is this? Who is this Man, this Jesus, who's able to command the physical forces of this planet, that they obey him at his word. Yes, Jesus is a teacher, but he's more than a teacher. Yes, Jesus is a rabbi, but he's more than a rabbi. Yes, he is a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. And In fact, speaking of a prophet, let's return to that comparison with Jonah the prophet, right? Jonah was a prophet who spoke for God, who was called by God to go to wicked Gentiles in Assyria and preach forgiveness to them. But Jonah refused. He didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. And he found himself on a boat in the midst of a terrible storm brought on by Yahweh himself. And the sailors who were up on the deck were scared for their lives. And so they go down waking Jonah, asking for assistance, for him to pray to his God. And it's at this point that Jonah knows the only solution is for him to be thrown overboard. And when he is tossed into the sea, the storm ceases its raging. Extremely similar language to what we have here in this text. But notice the contrasts. Jesus voluntarily goes to the Gentiles to preach salvation to them, whereas Jonah was the reluctant prophet and had to be steered back onto his course. Remember, that's why he was going. He's going to the other side of the lake and we're going to see him go into that territory in the next account. When the storm hits, he too is fast asleep, just like Jonah. And so too, the sailors come to wake him for assistance. But again, here's where the story differs drastically. Instead of Jesus being like Jonah and being thrown into the sea, instead Jesus is like Yahweh, the Lord of heaven and earth, who in the story of Jonah caused the storm. In other words, here is God himself being the perfect Israelite, being the perfect prophet, taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Jesus is the perfect God-man. And so in this text, as I said, we see a clear portrait of his humanity as he sleeps through an epic storm, and we get a clear display of his divinity as he calms that storm with the word. There was no one like this. There was no other person that can calm the storms that can control the natural world with a word because Jesus was the word become flesh and he is the one that all humanity should bow before and Jesus' power is unmatched he displayed it on that evening that he had control over all the physical forces on earth in other words get this he's the sovereign creator the very God that spoke and created this universe in Genesis chapter one was there in the boat with the disciples. You think that would freak you out a little bit? Jesus controlled by speaking just like God created the world and so therefore Jesus is the sovereign creator Yahweh himself. And so he's the one who created all things. He's the one who has made each one of us and he is sovereign over it all he is the lord and so like the disciples we must trust him as well like the disciples our trust must show itself in the midst of our trials sure we've trusted him for our eternal destinies but can we trust him in the midst of the difficulties of life or we can we trust him with the daily things that come upon us can you trust him when money is tight Can you trust him when the news from the doctor is devastating? Can you trust him when the future for your kids and grandkids looks grim? Will you trust him? The question of Jesus is there. Where is your faith? Friends, may our faith remain in Christ no matter what comes our way, no matter where we find ourselves. We can be confident that Jesus works for the good of his people, even when it looks like, in the disciples' case, he's asleep. Remember in Mark, he, he records the disciples ask, Jesus, don't you care? They question the very heart of Jesus because it looked like he didn't care. But he cares all along. Friends, even in the things that you're going through, even when it might not seem that God is there and that he knows, he does know. He's aware of what is going on. And you can know that he cares That he he knows and he's there to help. He has the power to help. Now his plan in your life and in mine may not be to calm the storm with the word, to take away the suffering, to take away the pain. There's no promise of that, although we do ask for that. His plan might simply be to strengthen us in the midst of the storm. That we'd be able to endure it with, with perseverance. That we would be able to count it all joy, as James 1 says. We don't know why he does what he does in our lives. We can know that he cares. He has the power to deal with it. And so we trust him. Well, someone might say, yeah, my problem isn't physical things in my life. It's it's spiritual issues. That's where my problem lies. Well, the good news is Luke shows us that Jesus doesn't just have power over physical forces. He has power over spiritual forces too. And that's our second display of Jesus' power here in Luke chapter 8. Jesus' power over spiritual forces. Look at verse 26. It says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Now verse 26 picks up on Jesus' little missions trip over to the, the, the territory of the Gentiles. The storm kind of threw them off course, but they continued to press on ahead. Now as simple as it may seem here in terms of where he went, there's actually a lot of debate about where Jesus went and performed this next miracle. And I'm not going to pull us into the weeds of that debate this morning, but I think it's helpful to be aware of it because it has been used by skeptics and atheists and those who try to attack the scriptures as a sign of incongruity, of the fact that the Bible contradicts itself, and so you need to be aware of it. The issue is this. In the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament that these, these books were originally, originally written in, between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have different location references for where this event took place. They say it happened in three possibilities. One is in the region of the Gadarenes, or in the region of the Gerasenes, or in the region of the Gergesenes. Can you understand the confusion? And each of these references reference a region of peoples connected to a city. And, uh, in fact, I have a map to show you these different, these different cities. Um, and up next to the Sea of Galilee, up at the top one, the, the red box at the top, is Gergesa for the Gergesenes. Next down is Gadara for the Gadarenes. And the third down in the, in the bottom corner is Gerasa for the Gerasenes. And hence, there's confusion. Now, again, I'm not going to pull us into the weeds of this, but <clears throat> if, uh, if you uh, would like an explanation, come down after the service and I will happily explain it to you. But in most modern translations, you'll see that in Matthew, that has Gadarenes while Mark and Luke have garasines. So they reference the two bottom cities. Matthew is more connected with the region of Gadara, the middle city there. And Mark and Luke connect it more with that lower city, Gerasa, or the Gerasenes. But there are uh, other manuscript evidence that is reflected in the King James Version and the New King James Version that have different names than these, and that hence It underlies all of this confusion. But again, if it intrigues you, come down. I'll explain it to you afterward. But here's the important point point for all of us, without getting into all of these different place names in a fascinating case of of, uh, biblical geography, uh, is that these accounts do not contradict one another. Okay? They do harmonize and they agree with one another. They're all just highlighting different ways to identify the same region. They're identifying it with uh, with different cities, and they have different reasons for that. Again, different explanations, but they all refer to the same kind of area, and they can all uh, they can both be true, and so this is not uh, an evidence of contradiction. And so, with that, Jesus goes, as Luke says, to the region of the Gerasenes and the Gadarenes. I believe both of those two are accurate. I believe the Gergesenes is actually a later edition and therefore is not uh, actually what was intended in any of the biblical authors. But one of the reasons we know it went down to this area is because there's a harbor on the Sea of Galilee, and we can go to the next picture, uh, down in the bottom uh, southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee where there was a harbor that's been discovered from ancient times and it was controlled by Gadara. Gadara. Gadara was actually set six miles away from the shoreline, but they had uh, territorial uh, rights to this harbor in which they uh, uh, participated in commerce upon the lake. And so we know that this was uh, very, with high likelihood, this is where Jesus went coming from the uh, area of Capernaum down to this other side of the lake. And... It's there, he comes into the harbor, he gets out of the boat, and here he is now faced with a crisis. And again, we'll see in this account the crisis, the salvation, and the response. Look at verse 27 for the crisis. It says, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. And so here, Jesus is immediately faced. He steps onto the shore, and I have to imagine that this demon-possessed man kind of rushed down from the hills and begins to charge this new group of people that are now upon the shore. But as he gets closer to the boat, he recognizes who's in the boat, who's the leader of this group of men. And this man, who is possessed by demons, confronts and cries out to Jesus. Now, I need to note that Matthew records that there were two men, Mark and Luke record that there's one. The way to harmonize that is just to understand that there was probably one who spoke, one that was dominant, and therefore, in the recollection, of those who who passed it on that Luke then recorded is that they remember one man that was there, but it can easily harmonize with two. Now, biblically speaking, demons... Are angels who have fallen those who originally created good but they rebelled with Satan and they were, fell out of heaven and they are called evil spirits unclean spirits or demons in the scriptures they do the bidding of Satan they're the enemy of God and they seek to do all the evil that they can now we've already seen demons active in Israel in the book of Luke chapter 4 Jesus deals with them but here we see them active in Gentile territory And notice how devastating this possession has been for this man. Notice verse 27, it's been for a long time. This didn't just happen yesterday. This man's been possessed for a long time. It says that he had worn no clothes. This demon had so taken control of him that this man was not in his right mind and that he was living naked without clothes. And it says that he hadn't lived in a house but among the tombs. This man was so uh, terrorized that he was, he was taken out of his right mind. He was no, no longer looked like an image of God, like he was created to be. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that all mankind is made in the image of God. Here he doesn't have an image of reflecting God. He's more reflecting this dis- dishevelment, this destruction of sin and rebellion and Satan. But this man not only terrorized, was not only personally terrorized, but I believe that the whole region was terrorized. Notice what was said in the end of verse 29. It says, for many a time it seized him, and it, it says he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, and he'd break the bonds, and be driven by the demon into the desert. The other gospel writers talk about how he would terrorize the citizens of these towns. Therefore, this entire region was was affected by the demonic presence that was there. In other words, this isn't just the crazy guy who's on the loony edge of town and you just try not to walk that way when you go home. This was a man that everyone feared and they felt his presence because the demons and Satan was providing a dominance there in this area. He had free reign. He sometimes would live in the tombs. He'd sometimes terrorize them in the towns. Or he'd go out into the desolate places, into the desert. He went wherever he wanted to because he had this demonic strength. And so right now, before Jesus shows up, the demons are the, 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 the have supremacy in this region. But now Jesus shows up and they know that there's a contender for the supremacy. Look at verse 28. It says, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. The demons speak through the man. And here it says that it's he, the man, speaking. Later on, it's going to talk about the demons speaking. But the reality is the demons control him and seize him and use the mouth of the man to speak for them. Notice that these demons know Jesus' identity. They are very clear about who this man is. Jesus, son of the most high God. Isn't it interesting that just a few hours earlier, his disciples were asking, who then is this? And here they get on the shore of Gentile territory and a demon says, Jesus, son of the most high God. Identity is clearly revealed. But notice the inherent power. These demons know that Jesus has power unlike anybody else. They've been tormenting people all over the place. But here, they've, they meet a man who is greater than them. And so they don't even put up a fight. They just, they just say, please, don't torment us. He says, he, he, they, these demons recognize that there is going to be an eschatological judgment that comes upon Satan and the demons and they hope it's not yet See, Please don't torment us now. We want to continue our work. We want to continue doing what we do. Now, verse 29 says that Jesus has been commanding them to come out. Verse 29, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. There seems to be a a progression. Uh, Mark describes it as he was commanding. In other words, it wasn't a single, a single command and the demon came out. It like Jesus was, was saying it over time and as we'll see, it, it will, he will ultimately prevail. And so this confrontation then goes to the next level which leads us from the crisis to the salvation in verses 30 through 33. Jesus now speaks. The demon has spoken. We, see, we hear that Jesus has, has, has been commanding the demon but here Luke records that he asks the man, him, what is your name? What is your name? And the man, speaking on behalf of the demon, says, Legion, Legion, for many demons had entered him. Legion was the name for a Roman military unit of up to 6,000 soldiers. And so legion meant essentially many in common everyday language. It's not to say that there were 6,000 demons. It's simply meant to say that there were many. There was a lot of demons that inhabited this man. I mean, I think it's fair to say at least a 1,000 and maybe upwards of that. This man was tormented in a way that has not been seen yet in the gospel of Luke. Jesus has cast out single demons from men. And in chapter 8, verse 3, we see that Jesus cast out seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. But here, maybe Jesus has met his match. Thousands of demons? Can he really have power over that many at once? It looks like he's outnumbered. How will he do? Well, the narrative changes from the man talking, it's been in the singular, to now the plural, the demons are all talking, the many, the legion, after his name is revealed. And it says in verse 31, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. They begged him. Notice that even that, in that word begging, they recognize that Jesus is the authority, that Jesus has all the power, and they're asking a sovereign superior for what they can do they are seeking permission from the God of the universe to, to go somewhere. They recognize that Jesus has the power over them. Now the abyss is the place where demons are sent and they are locked up and unable to operate upon this earth. They, they can be sent there during this time, uh, this age. They, it is also the place where Satan will be sent during the millennial kingdom. And Revelation chapter 20 says that he is cast into the abyss, he's sealed there, he's no longer able to deceive the nations. But now during this age, many demons and Satan are roaming about. And these demons don't want to be sent to that place of of the abyss. And so they're looking for a place to go. And they ask Jesus to go into a herd of pigs. Look at verse 32. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged to let them enter these. They want to be sent to this herd of pigs. Now it's important to remember that a kosher Jew, according to the laws of the Old Testament, did not touch pigs. It was unclean meat, and therefore, another indication that we're in Gentile territory here. You're not going to find herds of pigs in the Jewish side of Galilee. You're going to find them on the Gentile side. Mark tells us that it was a herd of about 2,000 pigs, 2,000 swine, that were upon this hill. I mean, just try to, try to picture that on a hill. That's a lot of pigs. That's a lot of hogs that are there, and the demons want to go into them. <laughs> but it's, it's amazing these demons are cowering. They've been operating in almost full supremacy in this region, and now they're whimpering before Jesus, begging, asking, pleading, please, please recognizing that Jesus can do whatever he wants. He doesn't have to follow their request. But he does. He grants the permission for them to go into the swine. And it says, the demons, verse 33, came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. This has been called the swine dive or the pig plunge. Um, They all... In kind of the, the lemming sort of reality, right? They just one after another all start flooding thousands of pigs into the water and don't stop until the last one goes in and they are drowned. Now the text, some have thought that this was a, a, uh, a steep cliff in which they all kind of dropped off and fell into the water. Uh, there's no the text doesn't necessitate that sort of geography i think rather what happened is that they're grazing on a steep hillside the demons went into them they ran down the hillside ran across the plain and into the water based upon the geography of the area but the point to see here is that good and evil in this world and in this universe is not a yin and a yang there's not good and evil are not equal powers that are battling for control Yes, there is good and evil. Yes, there are spiritual forces. But there's one that is dominant. God is dominant over Satan and over his, uh, over his minions. God is the sovereign one. Satan is submitted to him. Of course, Satan wreaks a lot of havoc in this world and, and does a lot of evil, but none of it is without the permission of God through Christ. They must seek permission to do what they want to do. We see this even in Job chapter 1. Now there are many questions from this account that rise in our minds, maybe they rising in your minds. Why do demons need to go anywhere? Why can't they just be cast out of the man and be good? Why do they need to go somewhere? We don't know. Why did the demons feel like they needed to drive the pigs into the water? Why can't they just be demon pigs on the hillside? Um, and what happens to the demons after they drowned? Are they in the water? Are they in the decaying flesh? We don't know. Uh, the text doesn't tell us. It just tells us that Jesus saved that man from the demon oppression that was upon him. And that's the point, folks. Jesus freed this man from the do- demons that tormented him, and he showed definitively that he possessed the spiritual power. He was the stronger one. And so Jesus rescued this man. But let's notice not only the salvation, but finally the response. The response here we see in verses 34 through 39. It says, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and t- told it in the city, in the country. They are freaked out. They just saw their herd. They're probably watching the pigs for the, the owners of those pigs. They're just, the, you know, the shepherds of them. And, and all of a sudden, they're, uh, they just lost them all. And they have to go explain why they lost 2,000 pigs and what exactly happened. And the owners are kind of going, what? That was my financial investment. And so they go trying to explain, you're not going to understand it. And so that's why verse 35, the people all come out to see it. They come out to see what happened. They're like, are you sure they're all gone? Are you sure they all drowned? And sure enough. And so they come and look what they find when they come. It says, they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Notice the markers that show that this man was truly a changed man. He was sitting at the feet of Jesus instead of roaming among the tombs. He's sitting the posture of discipleship, a posture that we're gonna see later on in chapter 10, where Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus while Martha is bustling around. There's, he's there to learn from Jesus. The demons have left him. He's clothed and in his right mind. He's a normal man again. He's now reflecting the image of God as he was created to do. He's been restored. But this whole scene of affairs doesn't sit well with the townspeople. They're afraid and they want Jesus out of there. It says that they were afraid and those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed and all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them for they were seized with great fear. They wanted Jesus to leave. And so notice this, that Jesus' display of power can either draw us to him or repel us from him. The disciples saw his display of power out on the boat and they were drawn to him to say, who is this one? But here, the townspeople see his display of power of casting the demon out and they want nothing to do with Jesus. They say, get away from us, you strange man who does all of this work with demons. And so Jesus complies with their request. He says, all right, all right, all right, and gets into the boat and begins to leave. But notice, after he acquiesces to the request of the townspeople, what does he do to the request of this, this man? Look at verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. This man wanted to be with Jesus. He wanted to follow him. Again, he's, the, he's modeling what discipleship looks like. He wants to follow the man who rescued him. He wants to sit at the feet of Jesus. He wants to learn from God himself. He has a new center of his life, and it all revolves around Jesus. But notice what Jesus does. He sends him away. He says, no, you're not going to come with me. He says, return to your home, verse 39, and declare how much God has done for you. This man, as MacArthur says, got turned from a maniac to a missionary. He He got the demon cast out of him and now he's sent on a mission to declare to all the people in that area who Jesus is and what God has done. In other words, Jesus is not going to be there physically. His presence, they don't want him there. But Jesus is sending a subversive messenger, a missionary, to go and to do that work for him. And therefore, Jesus' presence and the word of the gospel is going to continue long after Jesus has left. And notice that this man obeyed. He follows the instructions of his Lord. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Do you see the affirmation of Jesus' deity here? Jesus says, go and, sa- and tell how much God has done for you. And it says, he went and told how much Jesus did for him, which means that God and Jesus, their mission is one. Jesus is God in human flesh. When Jesus acts, God acts. And so from this story, we see that Jesus saves and does amazing salvation I believe that to see Jesus save a man from legions of demons tells us today that there is no person beyond the saving power of Jesus. No matter what we have done in our lives, no matter what kind of background we have, no matter what kind of history or record that we have, Jesus is powerful to save and to redeem us from the powers of darkness that clutch us. We need not be afraid of our past, of our sin. But to recognize that Jesus has the power to save. Amen? Amen? And we need to see here, lastly, that transformation results in declaration. Transformation results in declaration. I believe Luke wrote this down because. He wanted the first century church that he was writing to to see that when those who are transformed by Jesus, it's natural that they should obey their Lord and go out and spread the word of what God has done for them. And friends, may that be what we do as well, that we recognize and think deeply of all the mercy of God in our own lives, what he has done for us, how we've been transformed. And we tell of that. That is the good news that we share and put Jesus on display and display his power in our own lives. And so we've seen here in this text that Jesus put his power on display in two unmistakable miracles. So the question is, what will you do with Jesus? Are you gonna see this and be repulsed by him or will you be drawn to him in worship and wonder and be transformed by him? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this text that reminds us of the power of Jesus. May you do a work in our own hearts to be drawn to this man who has given himself for us that we might be in right relationship with you. We praise you for that work and ask that you give us boldness to speak of that amazing transformation. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.